HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This program is made possible thanks to the generosity of our listeners. Show your support at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. This week on Meet and 3, we look at the ways indoor and outdoor spaces are being reconceptualized during the pandemic to better suit new modes of living, working, and eating. Brought a vibrancy and an energy back to the city streets that were so dearly missed during the height of the pandemic. This is about how we can grow indoors all year round uh, using proprietary technology that we've developed. How do I have someone understand? Look, don't take a next to the June berries because you can eat those. That's free food. Tune in to Meet and Three HRN's weekly food news roundup wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast, the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome nutrition and food industry expert, Marion Nessel. In today's episode, we're going to talk to Marion about voting for the future of our food, her new book, Let's ask Marion, and we'll hear Marion's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As the pandemic rages on, we send support to everyone coping with it, especially those in the hospitality industry, continuing to struggle with all the ups and downs, and we send our great appreciation to all the essential workers keeping the world going. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. For most of her career, Julia did not put politics into her work. She was certainly an advocate, but her focus was influencing people, not changing laws. Now, that being said, Julia cared about what happened in the future, the food we would be cooking, eating, and producing. So much so, she set up the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts to carry on her mission after she was gone. 
And that mission is to make sure people understand where food comes from, who makes it and how, for it to be valued, and for it to be nutritious and delicious. The pandemic has really only underscored just how much foresight Julia had. And with the upcoming 2020 election, we thought it important to discuss what's at stake with the future of food and with your vote. Now, someone who's enjoyed an illustrious career on par with Julia's and one of the most informed people in the food world is Marion Nessel. Formally, Marion is the retired Paulette Goddard Professor of Nutrition, Food, and Studies in Public Health Emerita at New York University. But colloquially, Marion is the oracle on the food industry. Hence her latest book's title, Let's Ask Marion, What You Need to Know About the Politics of Food, Nutrition, and Health, published by the University of California Press as part of its California Studies and Food and Culture series, edited by Dara Goldstein, who's an advisor to the foundation. Having earned a PhD in molecular biology and an MPH in public health nutrition from UC Berkeley, Marion held faculty positions at Brandeis and UCF before becoming a government policy advisor in the late 1980s. She has written six prize-winning books, Food Politics, How the Food Industry Influences Nutrition and Health, which Julia herself deemed a courageous and masterful expose. This was followed by Safe Food, The Politics of Food Safety, What to Eat, Why Calories Count from Science to Politics, Eat, Drink, Vote, An Illustrated Guide to Food Politics, and Soda Politics, Taking on Big Soda and Winning, as well as the recent Unsavory Truth, How Food Companies Skew the Science of What We Eat. She has even written two books about pet food. It would probably take the rest of the show to chronicle her awards and accolades, but suffice it to say, they're pretty numerous. A few highlights include Michael Pollan ranked her as the number two most powerful foodie in America in 2011. That was after Michelle Obama. And in 2018 alone, she was named one of UC Berkeley School of Public Health's 75 most distinguished graduates in 75 years, won an IACP Trailblazer Award, and was made a Grand Dame by Les Dames d'Escoffier International. Our own Heritage Radio Network added her to its 10th anniversary Hall of Fame. Her Twitter account, with more than 144,000 followers, has been named among the top 10 in health and science. Marion joins us today to talk about what's at stake in the upcoming election and what matters most in the future of our food. Welcome to the podcast, Marion. Oh, glad to be here. Thanks for the introduction. (laughs) Yes, I I tried to keep it brief, but it's hard to sum up your myriad accomplishments. But I I wanted to well establish your credibility to to respond to my questions today, because I think they're pretty important. So what would you say is on the ballot this year in terms of our food? Absolutely everything. Uh, The Trump administration has done everything that it possibly could do to destroy the parts of our food system that were functioning well and to shore up the parts of the food system that are not functioning well. And by functioning well, I mean linking agriculture to public health, producing food that is uh, healthy for people as well as the planet, making sure that people who don't have very much money have enough healthy food to eat, and trying to do something to prevent uh, the rise in obesity and its health consequences uh, that affect so many people in America. 
so for me, a food system that functions is one that's good for people, everybody in the food system and the planet. Uh, and that's just not what's happened during the last four years. That was an incredibly concise summary of a challenging question. Bef before every conservative listener we have tunes out, what may sound like a partisan answer, I think, is is grounded in fact. So I think, could I ask you to, to respond to that in, in, a, in a slightly different way of why has the Trump administration done those things, in your view? Well, I, it's hard to know. Part of it is to undo everything that the Obama administration had done. Um, and part of it is, uh, I mean, there doesn't seem to be a coherent policy plan in this administration um, other than to undo and to promote corporate the corporatization of the food supply. I mean, the example, the two examples that just leap to mind, one pre-COVID and one post-COVID, the pre-COVID pre example was the moving of the Economic Research Service, a research arm of the Department of Agriculture out of Washington, D.C. to Kansas City, um, something that was explicitly designed to get people in that organization to retire and leave because they didn't want to move to Kansas City. Uh, and three quarters of the researchers in that unit left. This was a tiny research unit of about 200 people uh, who did research on the effects of various aspects of the agricultural system on our society. So they did research on the benefits of SNAP, for example, the Supplemental Nutrition uh, um, Assistance Program, or the effects of meat on climate change. And these were studies that were inconvenient for this administration's political outlook. Um, so that's a small example, but it's one that is particularly dear to my heart because the Economic Research Service produced research that I use in all of my work. And the other example is a post-COVID example, which is what happened to workers at meatpacking plants. They were forced to work under an executive order, even though lots of them were getting sick and some were dying. Um, so I, I think that you know, we hope that these policies will change. This requires voting in a different administration. And I'm sorry for the conservative listeners, but I have many, many examples of things that I wish were done better. Well, let's stick on that too, because I, you probably don't know. I actually grew up in Kansas City, so I have we have our base of Kansas City listeners. And maybe to illustrate that further, what in theory, there's nothing wrong with moving a DC apartment department to Kansas City or anywhere else. But I'm assuming what's also happened is there's been a change in what they're studying, or it's been so defunded it's not really doing anything. Well, there are two things that are going on. I mean, one was the researchers who were national experts on areas of their research 
they're irreplaceable or it will take years and years to develop that level of expertise again because they were doing continuous year-by-year reporting on various aspects of the food supply. Nobody knew about them better than they did. Um, As Mm. far as I can tell, the Economic Research Service is now doing counting reports. How much of trade are we doing? Um, How much meat is being produced? How much corn is being produced? That kind of thing. But the analytical reports that talked about what the significance of these changes were don't seem to be being done. And that was because they were politically inconvenient and because the researchers who did them were no, are no longer part of that. Now, there may be people in Kansas City who are being recruited into the agency. It's hiring like mad. Um, if you've got friends who are doing important research and want to do this kind of thing, tell them to apply for those jobs. Um, but at the moment, there's not a whole lot happening there. I see. And so you famously wrote about and have talked about voting with your fork, but I feel like you've also come around particularly this year to saying that, well, voting with your fork is good, but it's no longer enough. Is, is, is that a fair characterization? Uh, in one way, yes, but I have always said that. I have always talked about the necessity of voting with your vote as well as with your fork. I do think that voting with forks is important, and I know a lot of people argue about that, that that's totally focused on personal responsibility um, and on what individuals can do when what we really need to do is to change policy. And I totally believe that. Um, And I'm totally committed to that. Um, I think this year, voting with your vote is so obviously important that it doesn't require any explanation. But I've always argued that people who are interested in changing the food system need to get involved in politics and use the political system to create a food system that works better for health and the environment, Uh, particularly now when health is such a problem. We have enormous numbers of people in the United States who don't have enough food to eat, and we have enormous numbers of people in the United States who are eating so much of the wrong kind of foods that they are at risk for type 2 diabetes, heart disease, and earlier mortality. Uh, We could do something about that with a healthier food system utterly critical now that climate change is such a big problem and we're seeing the effects of climate change on our agricultural system um, in just with one crisis after another. The fires in California and the floods in the Midwest are only the most obvious examples. Yeah, I think we're starting to touch on some of the key things that I I think are going to be in your next answer, which is regardless of who wins the election, the the same kind of, I think, priorities are going to apply from your point of view and from a food point of view. So uh, not having a crystal ball and it uh, obviously being very fraught amongst people's concerns, regardless of who wins, what are the things that you feel really strongly the new administration needs to prioritize to to protect our food supply and public health, and especially maybe to uh, address some of the directional changes that you were just describing have left us in in a weaker position and have really, I mean, I guess it's even questionable whether you could say how much they've even benefited big agriculture. 
Well, I would say that big agriculture has been benefited by $50 billion over and above the farm bill that's been sent to large agricultural producers um, as part of the various bailouts. Uh, Big agriculture has certainly benefited. Uh, But what needs to be done, I mean, the first priority absolutely is to make sure that everybody in America has enough food to eat. And the and that means dealing with the large numbers of people who are at risk for food insecurity and hunger because they don't have jobs. Um, and we have large numbers of unemployed people. It's hard to know how many, but it's certainly 30 to 50 million. Um, and that only counts the people who have applied for unemployment insurance. It doesn't count the people who ha- who didn't make enough money to be able to apply for unemployment Mm. insurance. I think the COVID pandemic has exposed the plight of low-wage workers in the meatpacking industry, on farms, in meatpacking plants. And if we ever get restaurants again, uh, the absolutely shocking plight of low-wage restaurant workers who don't even make the minimum wage because of laws that were passed ages ago that excluded them from minimum wage laws. That's something that has to be fixed. Um, the people who are working in these jobs need to, in grocery stores, restaurants, food, fast food places, meatpacking plants, farms. These workers have to be paid a decent wage. They need health care benefits. They need educational opportunities. And if we're going to have a society that functions, these things have, have to happen. Um, you know, everybody, I, I think we need mill, we need a much greater emphasis on midsize and small farms, uh, that are at scale and more resilient. And that means putting a lot of resources into uh, supporting people who are on these farms, figuring out a way to uh, give them a market for their products uh, and make sure that they make a decent living. We can't have an agricultural system totally focused on corn and soybeans, particularly when 40% of the United States corn is used for ethanol, um, which is something I just can't get my head around. Um, and all of that, the rest of it is going for it. Uh, animal production, the single biggest food change we can make that will promote um, a healthier climate is to eat less meat, not no meat necessarily, but certainly uh, less beef. And uh, this requires a rethinking of the entire food system. And then we need to enforce food safety laws. And I could go on and on and on about all of the other policies that are needed. There are lots of them. Well, let, let's just cover a couple more, because I was going to ask you about this later when I wanted to talk to you about dietary fads, but it's relevant now. Um, you know, I think one of the things you've mentioned is how much, uh, you know, I think when you talk about minimum wage raising, I was just listening to a conservative commentator rail about this, but, you know, with this basis of trickle, like the fantasy that trickle down economics works, but that labor stuff is also related or is deemed, oh, the benefits you were talking about increasing SNAP is like, you know, it's too much welfare. Well, there's a giant amount of welfare to corporate agriculture and big ag and the farm bill. So changing the farm bill could actually 
in a, in a substantive way could make a difference. And I was even just wondering how far would simply eliminating corn subsidies go into the kind of rebuilding that you would advocate for? Well, it depends on what you do with the money that's released by that. Actually, it's only a few billion dollars a year. The farm bill, uh, about $20 billion of the farm bill every year goes to um, corn, soybeans, and large agricultural producers, because most of the farm bill money goes to large agricultural producers. Excuse me. The um, and so the real question is, what would you do with the money that was released from that? I would like the big, uh, the big money that went to agriculture over this last year was over and above the farm bill. It was emergency funds of one kind or another that were sent to large agricultural producers uh, to the tune of what is now uh, estimated at close to fifty billion dollars over and above the farm bill. Um, Well, some of that money could have gone to smaller producers. And we know that it didn't because I've talked to small and mid-sized producers who were trying to take advantage of the Farmers to Families Food Box Program, a program that was uh, originally aimed at helping small and medium-sized farmers and ended up uh, helping distributors. All of that money has gone to distributors. And small farms haven't gotten it. Medium-sized farms haven't gotten it. They're in big trouble. Um, so we could rethink the way our agricultural system is supported uh, and create an agricultural system that promotes the health and welfare of everybody who's involved in that entire system um, and do it with the amount of money that we have, just deploying it in a different way. But that would mean that the large producers of corn and soybeans would lose those uh, benefits. And they're not going to like that very much. And they're the ones who are using the political system to get what they want. They lobby They lobby Congress, they lobby the Department of Agriculture, uh, they get what they want. Well, I'm struck by the irony that you probably would have agreed with Trump that the swamp needed to be drained. (laughs) And the irony, the irony is that that's, I think, essentially what you're saying, except that the truth is no, no swamp has been drained at all. Oh, no, it's just a different swamp. Um, or actually, much yeah. of it was the same swamp. The um, I, you know, I mean, Trump came in with a, a explicit, an explicit agenda to destroy federal agencies, and he did a really great job of it. Um, I mean, I have to give him credit for doing exactly what he said he was going to do. And what we now have are federal agencies. The the heads of federal agencies were sent in to destroy them. They did a really good job of that. It will take decades to be to rebuild these agencies. Um, and that, I think, is a tragedy that I don't know how many people realize what a tragedy is. is. I'm particularly interested in what the Department of Agriculture does because so many food policies are governed by the Department of Agriculture. Um, and I see tragedy after tragedy after tragedy taking place there um, with one, well, thing, and the, and the- one policy after another. I can't, can hardly keep track of them. 
Well, and the irony is right. In theory, the the idea that Trump was implementing amongst conservatives is to reduce the largesse of government. But this seems to have had the effect of simply dismantling lots of checks and, and safety procedures and regulations that were designed to protecting people and the environment and public health, but has just re- re- or reallocated the money in terms of greater corporate welfare than really like reducing how much is spent on the federal level. Oh, yeah. We have a fantastic corporate welfare system in this country. The example that I love to give is that food marketing is deductible as a business expense. That means that taxpayers sub- subsidize uh, the marketers, the marketers of junk food to children. Um, we subsidize that, um, and that's corporate welfare. Corporate welfare is that fifty billion dollars in payments to large producers. Um, the gap between rich and poor in the country gets wider all the time, um, and we see the suffering of poor people. I mean, if the job situation, I don't understand why there's not more discussion about that. I don't understand why there isn't more public discussion of how much it costs if you get sick with COVID-19, what those healthcare expenditures cost you. Um, I've seen some discussions about it, but I, I don't understand why there isn't more. Nobody can afford this kind of thing. And that means that the priorities of government largesse are skewed in a way that doesn't help the population, um, or at least the population that I care about. Uh, so I, I vote with your vote. I got a real chance to do that in a couple of weeks. Do it. Okay. That's good advice. We're going to take a break and we'll be back to talk more with Mary Nessel about what's at stake this election and her new book, Let's Ask Mary and Stay With Us. All of us at HRN have been keeping busy despite working and recording from home. This fall, we're proud to announce new shows on the network that each bring important and enlightening stories to listeners around the world. While the world is in turmoil and the future of our country is uncertain, there are certain constants that help keep us going. For us, food and storytelling are essential. While we can't come together in person, food podcasts from HRN provide a virtual table we can all gather around. Bringing exceptional stories to your ears and keeping you informed on the ever-changing political and environmental issues of our time is integral to our mission. At a time when the world around us is rapidly changing, HRN is committed to being here for our listening community, and we need you to be here for us. Join our table and help ensure the future of food radio by becoming a member of HRN. Go to heritageradionetwork.org donate to make a contribution. Check out the latest additions to our lineup while you're there. You can see all of our series at heritageradionetwork.org slash new show. Welcome back. We're talking to Marian Nessel, the Paulette Goddard Professor of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health Emerita at New York University about what's at stake this election, and about our new book, Let's Ask Marion. So 
my takeaway from looking at the new book was that you're advocating that basically everybody needs to be more politically minded about food, nutrition, and health and all the things we were discussing in the first half of the show, and and that certainly COVID has brought all of this into sharper focus. So in addition to simply being mindful about casting your vote, are there other things that individuals should be doing or thinking about with this stronger political mindset that you're suggesting we need to have on food, nutrition, and health? Well, I want everybody to become an advocate for a food system that's healthier for people and the planet. I'm teaching a course at NYU this semester on food system politics in the coronavirus era. And I asked my class as their final paper to talk about what they could do as individuals to promote a healthier and more sustainable food system. And I'm really interested to see what kinds of things that they're saying, because um, many of them talk about what I would put under the heading of voting with your fork. Um, They want to uh, eat less meat, eat more plant foods, um, create less plant, less food waste, um, make sure that their wasted food is contributed to food banks. Um, Very, very much personal kinds of food choices that I don't want to dismiss. I think they're really important. Um, And that if lots and lots of people made those same kinds of choices, we would create a different kind of demand for uh, food in the system, one that would be better for people in the planet. But at the same time, they're also Um, because this is what I've been teaching, they also want to become advocates for healthier and more sustainable food systems. And a lot of them are talking about joining organizations, writing letters to their local representatives, writing letters um, to friends, getting their friends to do things, a lot about education. Uh, They want to make sure that everybody has the same understanding of the food system that they do. And some of them are are even considering my dearest goal, which is that they run for office. And I, I'm thinking now about our, our poor listeners sitting there who usually enjoy a, a, a show about a chef personality or a favorite new cookbook who are saying, oh, I, why are they bringing politics into food? Julia didn't do that. And what, what's your response to those who say we shouldn't, shouldn't mix politics and food? Well, first of all, Julia did, but uh, the, uh, and we could talk about that later. Um, I think everything about food is political. I think if you really want to understand your own food choices and the food choices of everybody else, you have to understand where food comes from, um, how it's grown, how it's marketed, how it's sold, and the influences on your own choices, which you may or may not recognize. A lot of the influences are, are unconscious. Certainly, food marketing is meant to be an unconscious influence. You're not supposed to notice it. Um, and the amount of money that's involved in food and the vested interest of food companies in selling their products creates a political situation, whether you like it or not. You can't avoid the politics. Food companies are not social service agencies. They're not public health agencies. They're businesses with stockholders to please. That's politics right there. Um, so, I, you know, I, I think it's... Uh, 
I hear that a lot, that the, the, the students that I teach really think that politics is dirty, it's corrupt, and it is dirty and corrupt. But <laughs> we don't get, if, if those of us who care about these issues don't try to use our personal integrity uh, in the food system, we're not going to get anywhere and we're not going to be able to change it. And I think it's really important for people who care about these issues to understand that individuals really can make a difference. And I have a great big long list of things that give me hope about changes in the food system. First of all, food in American supermarkets is much, much better than it was 20 or 30 years ago. And that's as a result of personal food choices and creating demand for healthier food. It's now available year round. There's more organic food. There are more community supported agriculture. Um, you know, my personal favorite is there are more food studies programs. I mean, the thing that gives me the most hope is all of these young people who are studying about food and are excited about it. When we started our food studies program at NYU in 1996, and I have to say that Julia Child was a big inspiration for that. She had inspired the program at Boston University, and I was jealous. I wanted, <laughs> I wanted one in it. I wanted one in it. This was just sheer envy. Um, I wanted one at NYU, and we were lucky enough to be able to create it in 1996. We were the first food studies program in the country. And now when I look at the website of the Association for the Study of Food and Society, I see that there are probably 60 or 70 Food studies programs are their equivalents at colleges all over the world. And this is just thrilling that this has happened. And I'll give Julia Child credit for that. Why not? Well, we agree. I mean, that's part of our mission at the foundation and things that we've been uh, trying to foster through our grant programs. So here, here, and and long may it continue. And I think you're right that that's, that's maybe one of the most effective ways to create change is you create a million Marian Nestles who are incredibly informed about food and politics. So those who just want to cook recipes don't have to worry about it as much. Yet there's an, an army trying to look out for the public interest and public good and public health um, who are really well informed because it honestly, it takes a lot of time and effort to be that well informed. It does. And I think it's worth the trouble. Although, you know, I think if there are any benefits from the COVID uh, pandemic, one of them is education about the food system. Everybody knows about meatpacking workers now. Everybody knows. Um, you know, I mean, even people who just don't pay any attention to this, never think of food as political, understand that meatpacking workers were forced to go back to work even though they were at high risk of infection. And I think there's, what, about 70,000 meat packing farm workers um, and slaughterhouse workers who have gotten sick. And I think it's up to about 300 deaths that are know about it, known about it. And these are confirmed cases and confirmed deaths. They're not the ones that we don't know about. Well, I was going to ask you back to this sort of labor uh, question, and I was listening to this crazy argument against a $15 national minimum wage and how that will will end up removing summer jobs for college students or some malarkey like that. Um, but I, I, my gut says, if you ask the average person of every political ilk, 
do you think the average person should get paid more? The answer is yes, within reason. So how are there ways that we change the narrative of, of and use the right language or different language where all sides feel like it is morally responsible and good for everybody, including the economy, for people whether they're meat working in a meat packing plant, delivering Amazon packages, or a server front of house in a restaurant, or on the line back of house, a, a, a living wage. Well, it seems pretty obvious to me that if people had living wages, they would spend more money and move the economy along even better. It would be better for them. It would be better for the economy. Um, you know, I, I think your term, corporate welfare, is um, a counter-narrative that's quite useful. Most people don't think of the payments that go to corporations or the benefits that go to corporations or the tax subsidies that go to corporations uh, to be welfare, but it is. Uh, you know, and the president himself, if he's only paying $750 a year in income taxes, that's welfare for President Trump. Um, and so it's just a question of who you think it's appropriate to have this kind of welfare for. for. It seems to me that this is a very wealthy country and we have enough money in this country to make sure that everybody can live a life that doesn't put them on the streets, that doesn't make them homeless, that doesn't make them starving, That and that, you know, I, I mean, the worst part of it is that, uh, you know, the general, the Department of Agriculture studies of food insecurity say that half of the population that is food insecure in this country are young children. That's not right. Uh, I mean, I no, think everybody I would think that we need to do something to make the plight of children better in this country. We need to make sure that they're healthy, fed, educated, um, and have a chance for a richer and more rewarding life. I mean, that's the American way. It's always been the American way. And I think that most Americans, if you ask them, would say yes. We have to do this for our children. That's the future of this country. Yeah, no, I think it requires a substantial reframing. I think I saw something that Billy Graham's granddaughter actually came out with a statement saying something about, I'm pro-life, but pro-life has to extend beyond just the womb. And how pro-life can you be if you're ignoring the fact that once people are born, they may not have enough to eat or health care or, you know, be sentenced to death. None of those things are very pro-life. So it needs to be much more consistent across the board. Well, that's one of the great ironies of the American system is that Americans are, um, you know, uh, many Americans are against abortion, but they're, but do nothing for the children that are actually born. And we have one of the poorest uh, child welfare systems in the developed world. Um, and they, you know, we, should, we need to do something about that. And I hope that um, it, the, we'll be able to do that if, in the current, the next election that will, you know, that's one of the things you're voting for in the next election is for uh, a world that is just better for people in general. 
shifting gears slightly, because I, I wanted to get your take on this, and because certainly Let's Ask Marion covers more than just the election. It's it's very broad about the kind of future of, of public health food and politics. So are we ever going to get over dietary fads? Or do you also, because I know you've done a lot of work and research into this, or is it just my conclusion is it's human nature to always want a magical shortcut? What, what do you think? Well, absolutely. And I, and people think that diets are very complicated and that what you're supposed to eat is very complicated and they're really confused about it. And I say in practically every lecture I give, and I'm going to say it now, that diets are so simple that the journalist Michael Pollan can do it in seven words. Eat food, not too much, mostly plants. That really takes care of it. That's an umbrella for diets of enormous variety and pleasure. Um, just by food, that means not too much junk food or ultra-processed is the current term for it. Avoid ultra-processed foods, but be, and ultra-processed foods are those that are industrially produced, have ingredients that you can't buy at a grocery store and you can't make in home. And you can't, these are products you can't make in home kitchens. Um, you know, eat those in minimal amounts. Everything else is fair game. Um, and why that is confusing, I think, has a lot to do with food industry marketing and the goals of food companies to produce, sell as much as they possibly can in order to meet their shareholders' financial interests. Um, and you know, I don't think government nutrition advice helps very much because because of all the food industry lobbying, the advice is always stated in euphemisms and never very directly. Directly would be eat food, not too much, mostly plants, um, and avoid ultra-processed foods. Really simple stuff. Uh, well, I, I, Marion, I think that's really clear, but I actually think a lot of people do understand that. But what happens is they hear that and they think, okay, got it. I that what I'll do, or I already do that. But then someone comes around being like, there's a magic shortcut. If you just cut out gluten and bread, you will be thin. And everyone just throws that advice out the window and jumps on that bandwagon. And I so, do you think that that is just human nature or there's actually a way that stronger government policy could actually prevent people from being so easily steered? Well, I think that stronger government policy would would help. I'm a great believer in educational policies, clear dietary guidelines, and policies that food policies that support dietary guidelines. Um, and I and I do think it's human nature, but it's also um, it's human. If if I go online and and type in um, on a search engine, what are influences on food choice? I get diagrams that talk about peer pressure, the amount of money you have, the family you grew up in, what your friends are eating, uh, what's available at your supermarket, all of that kind of thing. They never talk about food industry marketing. They just don't talk mm. like it's the elephant in the room that you just don't even talk about. And I wrote my book, Food Politics, in 2002 to try to bring the issue of food industry marketing at least into public consciousness. What advertisers tell me is that you're not supposed to notice advertising. 
It's supposed to occur at a subliminal level below the radar of critical thinking. And it's very hard to talk about things that you're not conscious of. How do you talk about them if you don't even know they exist? Um, (laughs) I think we're in a situation, and and also these diets are fun. I mean, they're really fun, and they come with what sounds like some kind of strong scientific foundation. They're promoted by somebody who's selling a book or selling a product um, that that person really believes in. So you have this big emotional connection with the person who's selling the product. I mean, these are all things that humans respond to um, very strongly without even being aware of responding to it. And the other thing is, of course, that all these diets work if you follow them. They all work. They all reduce calories. And and I would say that that's the other part of this, is that the idea of calories is so abstract um, and so untouchable. You can't taste them, smell them, feel them. You don't know that they're there. Um, You don't really understand what calories are or what energy means um, because it's complicated scientifically. Um, And yet calories are a sufficient explanation for gaining weight or losing weight, um, which is why advice to eat less and move more makes perfect sense, theoretically, but is almost impossible to follow in practice because you can't tell by looking at a food how many calories it contains. And I'm fond of saying that if I had one nutritional concept to get across to the American public, it would be this larger portions have more calories. <laughs> I can't even, even if it's a, a very large rice cake, right? I can't even say it with a straight face because it sounds so completely ridiculous. But, you know, we have evidence that people don't realize that. You know, and that Oh, I I I I have my own personal evidence of yeah, that. Right. Yeah, no. I right, there's a confusion that if you've put together what in your mind is a healthy plate of food that then you've you know done some reduction, but you can still eat too much healthy food even. Oh, absolutely, with no question at all. Um and you certainly can eat ultra processed foods more and that experiment has been done. Um, Kevin Hall at National Institutes of Health did an experiment in which he showed that subjects who were given meals that were matched in whether they were highly processed or not, the one when they were eating the highly processed foods, they ate more, 500 more calories a day and had no idea they were eating so much. They were completely yeah. unaware that they were eating so much more and they gained weight. Big surprise. They were eating 500 extra calories a day. They gained two pounds in the two-week period. Um, So we can show that eating these ultra-processed foods encourages calorie intake. People love the way they taste. And they don't make you full in the same way. So, you know, that's uh, true. But those are the foods that are most profitable for food companies. Ah, there you go. Okay, I, we're going to go to break. And I, I want you, though, to repeat your, your seven-word bar cribbing from Michael Pollan dietary advice. Yeah, just so totally plagiarized from Michael Pollan. Eat food. Not too much. Mostly plants. Really, that does it. Okay, you heard it here. And after the break, Marion is going to share her own Julia moment. 
Get in touch, send us an email or a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org, or better yet, give us a tweet at juliachildjcf. Let us know what you think about today's show. Share your ideas for future guests. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory moment or how she's inspired them in their career. Marion, what's your Julia moment? Well, I've already told you that Julia Child was the inspiration for NYU's program in food studies. But my personal story is that in the early 1990s, a mutual friend, um, uh, Julia was very uh, tough on nutritionists. She thought nutritionists <laughs> were ruining food for the rest of the world. And a mutual the food friend, police, she called them. Yes, exactly. So a mutual friend thought that if Julia met me, she would change her mind. So she arranged for me to have um, dinner at Julia's house in Cambridge. I can't even tell you how thrilled I was. I could barely, just barely even think about it. And I walked into Julia's house. There was a dinner party of about six people sitting around her dinner table, the one, the very one that's in the Smithsonian right now. Um, and everyone stared at me. Um, and we sat down to eat and the, and Julia had prepared, um, some kind of potatoes in enormous amounts of butter and a steak. And Julia said, there's nothing like a good steak now, is there? And everybody stared at me to see whether, what I was <laughs> waiting for your objection. What was I going to do? And I was very well brought up. I ate it. <laughs> but I thought it was an act of hostility. I thought she was so angry about being put in this position of being forced to confront a academic nutritionist that um, she was behaving in a particularly hostile way. And Stephanie, her assistant, later apologized to me about it. Um, but later, as we did food studies and she realized what we were doing at NYU, uh, she was very supportive of my efforts and wrote me some very nice notes afterwards. And she was was always a hero of mine. Well, that's very gracious. Considering I think you're exactly right. I think she was being sort of passively aggressively. There are many I stories of her doing these yeah, mischievous <laughs> thumbing her nose and uh, all of that. Although I'm fascinated. I don't know. You probably haven't done this because why would you? But if you go back to The Way to Cook, which was a very groundbreaking, very non-French book that Julia wrote, and you look at it now with a 2020 eye, it's actually really surprising how many compromises Julia made, I assume at Knopf's direction, to the food and fat police of the era. That there, you know, There are recipes in there that are very dietarily conscious in a way that's even kind of been debunked today. And I, I was kind of, I was kind of shocked when I took that look again. I don't know if you've gone back and looked at it. 
Well, she was much more flexible than she said, you know, than she, she let on. I mean, it was, it's difficult being an icon. I have some <laughs> sympathy for it. But um, whenever I go to the Smithsonian and look at Julia's kitchen, it just brings me back to that. I also brought her my copy of Mastering the Art of French Cooking to sign. And you could see where the pages were stuck together in the things that I had cooked for it uh, but that didn't warm her heart and I so hoped that it would oh well and, and so I assume I guess the second you walk into the Smithsonian and and you see that the kitchen exhibit you you can smell steak and and, and buttery potatoes right <laughs> Well, thank you so much for joining us today and giving your thoughts at what's at stake at this election and talking about Let's Ask Marion. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. And thanks, everyone, for joining us and listening to this discussion, which I hope you will take to heart because it's really important. And if you want to learn more from Marion, if you're not already familiar with her work, she's at Marion Nestle on Twitter and at Marion.Nestle on Facebook. She blogs frequently at foodpolitics.com. And again, the book is Let's Ask Marion What You Need to Know About the Politics of Food, Nutrition, and Health in Conversation with Carrie Truman from the University of California Press. Ask or search for it at your favorite bookseller. Remind your friends about the foundation and this podcast. We're at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. It's at Julia Child JCF and I'm at T. Shulkin on Twitter. While you're at it, remind your friends to vote. The Julia Child Award clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks, as always, to my co-producer at the Foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Amanda Wang. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Veltorni. Please remember to give us a review. It really helps new listeners discover the show. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you get your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.